Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, we are thrilled to bring to you Raghun Rajan. He is, of course, at the University of Chicago Booth School. He is, of course, a former Reserve Bank of India governor, but also one of the most prescient students of American culture and our future. We're thrilled that Dr. Rajan could join Bloomberg this morning. Raghun, I want to go back to, I think it was 2012, and your post-mortem in the, corp- on the, the corporation and finance, where you talked about the near-death experience of 2008. How close are we to that now? When you look at the unique challenges every central bank happens, including the work at Bank of India uh, 10 days ago, I will say, how close are we to a 2022 near-death experience? Well, every uh, sort of uh, episode is different, of course. Uh, I think we are... Uh, not as fearful of the banking sector this time because of substantially more capital in that sector. What is less known is uh, what happens in the shadow banking system, Uh, the cryptos, the uh, finance companies, the uh, various funds. And uh, uh, what has happened over the last uh, 10 years is we've had very easy money Uh, Very easy money means leverage. Very easy money means a dependence on liquidity uh, and uh, a dependence on being able to roll over stuff. And the big unknown is how many, Mm -hmm. uh, how much of the financial sector is uh, is actually going to have problems as rates go up, as rollovers become more difficult. Yesterday, day before, we saw that happening to stable coins. What else is waiting out there? Right. Uh, Buy now, pay later. Yeah. What's so important here, Dr. Rajan, is the University of Chicago's intellectual foundation and leadership on the breaking of inflation by Paul Volcker a few decades ago. I know history doesn't repeat, but what are the methods we need to do to break this inflation? 
Well, uh, Paul Volcker used a sledgehammer, right? Uh, he essentially uh, created a double-dip recession in order to squeeze out inflation. Uh, we hope it doesn't come to that this time. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I think the message from Volcker is as inflation gets legs, as it picks up, as it spreads, and it spreads not just within the country across goods and services, but across the world, uh, you have to uh, take strong medicine. And that means raising rates, uh, typically uh, a percentage point or two above the prevailing inflation rate. And right now, we are so far from it. Now, the good news, I think, is when you look at inflation expectations over the last few days, they seem to have come down. That's an interesting development. People think the Fed is serious. Uh, the markets may not be perfectly right, but they certainly think the Fed has a chance now. You look at five-year, five-year forward uh, expectations, they had gone up to 2.5%. They backed down to 2.3 now. So there, there's something here suggesting the market believes the Fed is serious. Raghuram, you're talking about the concern about financial stability as well as this belief and faith that the Fed can actually bring down inflation, that they're actually going to go ahead and do that. In some ways, does the Fed get more conviction to go faster and more from the fact that the disruptions, whether it's in the stable coin that you talk about, whether it's the fact that we've seen massive amounts of pain in the big tech sector, that we have not seen a wholesale financial market collapse in some of the shadow banking sector, does that give the Fed more confidence that they can raise rates at the pace? that they're planning to? I, I think it does. Uh, I also do think that, uh, um, you know, the fact that the market was not reacting uh, earlier in the year to anticipation that the Fed would do something, certainly into late last year and early in this year, um, that was a source of concern. Everybody knew the Fed had to start raising rates. And, uh, you know, you wanted some of the uh, uh, sort of oomph behind the market to die down. Uh, now that has happened, but uh, as you said, it hasn't resulted in a wholesale collapse. It has been, you know, steady declines. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Uh, of course, the Fed is wary. It doesn't want to cause a market collapse. And uh, that, you know, if that does happen, it may have to uh, rethink uh, a little bit its strategy. But certainly, uh, steady decline is not a bad thing for the Fed. Meanwhile, the great Fed conundrum of 2022 is just how much growth has to come down in order to meet their goal of bringing down inflation in light of some of the supply chain disruptions, and the supply side issues that have really caused this. Where do you weigh in on this as a former central banker, as a former head of a central bank that had to make some of these hard decisions? Do you think it's worth it to curtail employment, to potentially send the economy into a recession if that's what it takes to bring down inflation? Well, there are two sources of, of concern, right? One is that inflationary expectations get more entrenched as you see higher inflation over a sustained period. And the second is that translates into workers demanding higher wages and you get the wage price spiral. Uh, workers demanding higher wages, <coughs> causing higher inflation, uh, causing them to demand more. Now, uh, there are two ways to break this. One, of course, is to bring down inflation, so expectations come down. Uh, the other is to take some of the heat of the labor market uh, to create some slack so that uh, workers now say, well, maybe inflation has gone up, but I'd rather prefer having my job than going out uh, uh, you know, demanding a wage hike. And uh, I think 
you can work on both. Now, the, the, I think the possibility of having a softer landing is certainly one that has been talked about a lot, an increase in labor supply as COVID uh, sort of fears come down, but importantly, as immigration picks up and, uh, and floods the lower <clears throat> end uh, with a few more people taking the heat of the labor market in that, uh, at that end, and that can transmit up, upwards. But I think these are things that take time. I think the Fed has to act to show that it's serious and hope that these forces uh, sort of kick in down the line and prevent that, uh, that recession from necessarily happening. Yeah. Raghu, very importantly here, your book, The Third Pillar, was one of my books of the summer. You talk there about the elites of America leaving the community behind. Give us an update. I don't think it's that pretty, is it? It isn't. And my big worry is that we've spent $6 trillion, uh, but a lot of it was income support and not so much on uh, structural reforms that would strengthen uh, the capacity of those communities that are disadvantaged, that are falling behind, their capacity to earn a uh, you know, stronger living, uh, to have stronger institutions. Now, I think we have a chance. I think with the increase in uh, technology, the ability to work from home that we've learned during the pandemic, maybe economic opportunity can spread more widely, that people in skilled services don't have to go into the big city every day. They can stay in more remote places. They can fertilize those places with their capabilities, with their incomes, and you get a spreading of economic activity. But we have to work on this. Uh, we have to do far more. And I think if we do more, it will reduce some of the divide that plagues not just the United States, but almost every industrial country. We do have to build up elsewhere, uh, level up, so to speak. Raghu, I always enjoy listening to you. Thanks for being with us for so long. Raghu Ramrajan there of the University of Chicago Booth School. Right now and moving forward into the summer, it is a joy to speak to Angela Stent. She is non-resident senior fellow, Brookings, and author of my book of the year made far too early in this tumultuous 2022 Putin's world. All I can say is it's definitive. Uh, Professor Stent, thank you so much for joining today. Here's what Wikipedia says about Mr. Putin's health. These claims are speculative and made by those who are not medical professionals. So Dr. Stent, I remember you on Dr. Kildare a few years ago. How is Mr. Putin's health? Well, I am not a medical doctor. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, so it is all speculation. I mean, if you look at him uh, on Monday in the May the 9th uh, rally uh, commemorating the uh, anniversary of the defeat of the Nazis, he didn't look quite, you know, as robust, let's say, as he's done on previous occasions. His speech was very short. We all expected something longer uh, and more bombastic in a way. I mean, it was still pretty aggressive, but it was kind of toned down and he didn't make really any news, uh, which people thought he would. But it, we, I, we do have to reiterate, it's all speculation. Um, you know, I've seen on Twitter many people claiming to be medical professionals who've diagnosed him with a large number of ailments, but we just don't know the truth. Uh, Dr. Stent, you have studied Napoleon to Moscow, Hitler to Moscow, and now Putin to Kiev. Is his military overextended? I think it is. 
I think they're doing much less well than people thought. They're even having a very hard time taking the rest of the Donbass. They have taken some territory in the past few weeks, and they're grinding on. They're still just as brutal. Uh, but we, one would have thought that they would have been able to take more territory. You have this kind of dynamic stalemate now in the Ukraine war. The Russians take some territory. The Ukrainians push them back. Uh, the Ukrainians are now pushing them back from Kharkiv, the second largest city. So they are not performing as well as people thought they would, but they still do have the firepower and the manpower. So uh, they're going to continue this grinding war, I guess, as long as they can until they achieve some of their objectives. Angela, how much raw equipment do they have left that doesn't need any repairs? And I ask this because a lot of people were talking about the sanctions and how it would prevent imports to Russia of some of the key aspects to fix, for example, tanks, to fix other issues, their planes. How much is that starting to bite? Oh, I think it's definitely starting to bite exactly with the sanctions and the spare parts. I mean, they still do have equipment, but as far as we can see, it isn't top shape. It isn't in great shape. So it's going to get more challenging for them going forward. With respect to gas and oil, and I want to pivot to that point because we are hearing so much about ongoing negotiations uh, in Europe. How would you characterize them? Because there's so much uncertainty of what they've agreed on, what they're planning to do, what groundwork is actually getting laid. How realistic is it to see a real shift away from Russian gas in the near future. So at the moment on the oil, they're still arguing within the EU about a total cutoff, um, particularly Hungary as a holdout and says that it's not going to stop importing Russian oil because that would be devastating for its own economy. One assumes that they're going to continue these difficult negotiations and try and come to some compromise with the Hungarians. And then with gas, it is more challenging. I mean, the Germans have now said that they do want to get off imports of Russian gas but they can't do it tomorrow or even in six months. It's going to take them a longer time. The Russians, of course, threatening and actually cutting off some of the gas supplies already. So that's a rather messy set of negotiations. Uh, but they, they're continuing to try and figure out how best that is Europe can wean itself totally off Russian energy. But it'll still take time. Angela Stent, years ago, I remember asking the giant Marshall Goldman this question. Let me ask the same one to you. We were wrong, 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 wrong about the strength in our intelligence of the Soviet Union. Do you believe we have a good understanding of the strength of the Russian army, the Russian military complex, including Navy? So I think we overestimated the strength of the Russian military, just apparently as Putin did. I think even our intelligence services have been surprised by how badly they've done, uh, because maybe we just didn't have insight into the impact of this pervasive corruption, where a lot of the money that was supposed to have gone to new equipment, to training, to building up the army is lining people's pockets. And maybe we just didn't understand that well enough. And I think we're now uh, coming, trying to reassess our previous assessments of the Russian military and maybe downgrade them. But I think it's sort of natural that any intelligence agency will look at the worst case scenario because that's what they have to do. And therefore they probably did overestimate how quickly the Russians would be able, be able to accomplish what they're trying to do in Ukraine. Angela Stent of Brookings. Angela, just wonderful to have you with this on the program as always. Angela, thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a joy and a great pleasure. Barton Crockett is a gentleman of certain courage. He's at Rosenblatt Securities and joins us right now. And as all of you look at your drawdown, let's pick Amazon down 42% from the peaks. Crockett lonely was out front. He has been a consistent neutral as a general statement on the fangs for quarters and quarters and quarters. Barton, I want to drill down to one emotion right now, which is, does Jeff Bezos come back to Amazon? Is Amazon online retail so screwed up that like Iger at Disney, Bezos must return? No, Bezos isn't coming back. He's, uh, he's enjoying life. Um, you know, I think that um, the focus at Amazon for growth is going to be on Amazon Web Services, Amazon retail there, direct to you retail or third-party retail um, is a business that I think is doing what every business should do, which it's gotten so large that I think it is hitting uh, a maturity plateau. And if you look at the numbers for Amazon retail um, for um, a few quarters now, they're not growing faster than retail overall. And that's 70% of sales for Amazon. And um, you could argue that that's not the driver of value. The web services is, which is I think the saving grace for the stock, but uh, a big revenue line, I think, is resetting. Um, I think the, the the growth story of Amazon is different now because right. of the pandemic. We've had a pull forward. We've had the competitive set improve. You've weeded out the weakest players. Um, and Amazon doesn't have a strong play in click and brick. And that's a meaningful okay. part of what consumers are looking for right well, now. Martin, with the pullback yeah. that we with the pullback that we're enjoying here, would you mm-hmm. suggest that the anointed profitable of technology are going to have a come to Jesus moment and they're going to change their business models more towards profitability and use of free cash flow? We're already seeing uh, changes. You know, we're we're seeing Amazon work through uh, excess supply. Remember, a bull argument for Amazon was that in the pandemic, they build up the supply that would power the business because it would give them the capacity to, to meet the demand. And instead, they, they overbuilt. So they're having to right size to reality. Um, you know, we're seeing that in other businesses, um, a tighter focus from these growth stories on what life is when you start to face more maturity, which is what a lot of these big companies are coming into right now. 
So talking about right-sizing, we've seen a huge right-sizing in Twitter share prices today. We've seen uh, Elon right. Musk come out and say that he uh, was going to put it on hold, but then he just came out recently uh, in the past few moments saying that he was still committed to the acquisition. You're seeing a bit of a pop uh, near $40 on the shares, but still a deep skepticism that this will get done at the deal, yeah. at the price deal that, uh, that he was talking about. How much of a re-rating do you think needs to happen further, based not just on Twitter's uh, model, but also on the broader re evaluation of how much some of these big tech companies are worth? Well, I think, I think in the case of Twitter, um, I think that this is Elon Musk being Elon Musk. Um, I think at the end of the day, he's, he's put his, uh, put himself so deep into the water on this one that I don't see it, see it. I don't see him turning back. Um, you know, if he did turn back Twitter, there'd be some sentiment reset, but I think on a fundamental basis, I don't think he actually paid much of a premium. I think that Twitter um, was not as uh, mispriced as, as you know, perhaps some other equities have been. Um, look, I, I think that that what we're confronting right now is uh, a separation from some companies. So some companies are confronting uh, the reality of an addressable market that is not what we thought. We're seeing that with Netflix. I think we're seeing that with Amazon retail. Um, other companies, I think, are going through uh, situations that are going to be long-lived. And I put Apple in China, um, the, the never-ending COVID lockdowns, what that does for an important end market, what that does for never-ending supply disruptions. I put them in that camp. Um, you know, for businesses where the blue sky story is, is not what it was or is being challenged, um, you know, I think right now is a time of reset and a time of rethink. Uh, for companies that are going to be able to power through this, and I put Alphabet um, in that camp. The, the search business is something that'll be here generationally. YouTube, I think, can handle its short form transition. Yeah. Uh, cloud services, I think, you know, that's a company that I think can separate. So in the FANG group, that's the one company that I'm recommending. Um, you know, the other companies, I think, have issues that need to be worked through. But on one issue with Twitter, and let's finish there, just yeah. on the substance of the tweet from Elon Musk this morning. Yeah. He's basically probing this idea that there might be more than 5% of the Uber's base that make up spam, fake accounts, bots, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. Have you got any calculation on that whatsoever? No. I mean, there's no one on the outside that can, can you know, go beyond Twitter's disclosures, nor can Musk. I don't think Musk knows. I, you know, I think this is talk. I think this is him doing what he does, which is stirring up the pot. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the caveat is that, you know, I'm not Musk. I don't know precisely what he's going to do, but my bet would be uh, that this is time. I think that's got to be the bottom line. No one knows what Elon Musk yeah. is thinking. Let's not right. try and work that out. Barna Crockett, mm -hmm. Rosenblatt Securities. Yeah. Megan Green now, Global Chief Economist, Kroll Institute with us and senior fellow, Harvard Kennedy School. Megan, you know the framework here. 2% and under is where we're comfortable on inflation. Adam Posen at Peterson Institute has controversially suggested maybe the new 2% is 3%. Hope and a prayer we're trying to get back to 4%. How important is this discussion of 2 3 and 4% is a new level of inflation? I actually don't think it's that important. Lots of people have been saying that the Fed should be targeting 3% inflation all along anyhow. Um, the point isn't whether it's 2, 3, or 4. It's it's whether it's stable or not. And so I think the, the glide path to that is what's most important, whether it's 2, 3, or 4%. I think the Fed, by the way, 
would be fine with three or four percent inflation by the end of the year. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll quite get there yet. That might we might have to wait until next year for that. But it's it's the path there. As long as inflation expectations remain anchored, I think the Fed is okay with overshooting their target by that much. They're just not okay with what we have now. How much of that glide path is linked to the glide path of a slowdown in economic growth? They're clearly linked, um, and they get at the debate on whether inflation is so much higher because of demand-side factors or supply-side factors. And we economists just fundamentally cannot agree on that, in part because we've never put the economy on a deep freeze and defrosted it before, so we've never done this before. But also in part because it's demand relative to supply and supply relative to demand. So if we have a weaker economy, that undermines demand, and, and so that can take some of the heat off inflation. And that's pretty much all the Fed has got to work with. The Fed can't do much about supply-side actions. And I tend to actually think that it's the supply-side factors that are overwhelming demand-side factors on inflation right now. All the Fed can really do is engage in what we economists call you know, aggregate demand management, which means killing off demand. And that's why everyone's so worried about Fed actions resulting in a recession. Megan, if you're talking about the majority of inflation coming from the supply side, then essentially, given how strong those pressures are, does the Fed essentially have to spur a recession in order to fight inflation? And I ask this because, frankly, it's the sort of delicate issue that a lot of Fed officials are trying to dance around. Yeah, it may well have to. Uh, as I said before, the Fed can't do anything about the supply side factors. All it can do is, is tinker with demand. And so we obviously are out of whack between the two. Uh, and so the Fed's going to have to cool off demand. Um, and of course, central banking tools aren't precise. They kick in with long and variable lags. And so, you know, the Fed can't find tweak this perfectly. It may end up hiking too much and pushing us into recession. In fact, that's what usually happens. The hope is that the Fed can generate some kind of soft landing. Yeah. I would say this is going to be really hard. I mean, the Fed is effectively trying to thread a needle wearing oven mitts blindfolded. It's, it's going to be really tough. So we haven't really seen the repricing to the same degree in credit as we have in equities. And this is interesting because, frankly, a lot of people look at credit as the canary in the coal mine. It has not been that. How concerned are you about some sort of crisis to be uh, in, in terms of the next couple of months or even uh, a year because you're getting both the growth slowdown and rates that are higher. You know, I'm not that worried about it. Uh, before the pandemic hits, I was very worried about corporate leverage in the U.S. And of course, the Fed's actions in response to the pandemic supercharged corporate leverage. That being said, companies have built up huge cash positions. And so I think that they, they've got a while to burn through that before we really need to worry about um, credit and about kind of defaults that end up being sort of cascading defaults, prompting a recession. I think we're a long way off from that. So I'm not particularly concerned. For what it's worth, though, I think if, if that were to happen, if there were signs that was coming, I think the Fed would actually about face. And, and there the Fed put still exists, I think. The Fed is fine watching equity markets fall for now. That's not really systemic. If we saw dislocations in the credit markets, that would get the Fed's attention. Megan Green of the Kroll Institute. Megan, thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. When you have the courage to write the notes that Mr. Schumacher writes, folks, you not only put a rate on it, you put a date on it. Mike Schumacher is one of the very few saying, here's the terminal rate. Mike Schumacher, 3.05% in the middle of next year, and then you go on to a higher statistic, is, well, what is the likelihood of that happening given the worries about a growth slowdown? Yeah, Tom, we think the market has to price a lot more tightening by the Fed, and the reason is policymakers are talking tough. And I know the market's faded the Fed countless times over the last 15 years. This one does feel different. Powell's basically penciled in 50 for the next couple of meetings. So, we think there's a pretty good chance that that terminal rate gets up to 375 over the next few months. That'll feel really bad for risk assets, but that's really the idea, actually, is to tighten conditions quite a bit. How bad will it feel for equities, given how much we've already priced in versus credit that perhaps and arguably has not priced this all in yet? I think I've talked my friend Chris Harvey off the ledge, Lisa, but I suspect that's probably another <laughs> downturn of, you know, 10 plus percent. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on one second. You think that there's another 10-plus percent downside within credit? Oh, no, in equities. In equities, okay, in credit. Can can you tell us, Mike, how Chris responded to that, given that he's got, I think, a 47-15 price target on the S&P? You know, it's not the day to quantify these things, John. It's Friday the 13th. A lot of strange events happen, so I'll leave that to Chris, but but down a bit. Yeah, but, John, the problem is Harvey's standing on the ledge of the bar at Benoit on 56th Street, and it's only like a two-foot I, I think there's probably going to be, I, I guarantee there's an email waiting in Mike's inbox from Chris in a few minutes' time. Mike, let's work through this. You had a big call on the front end at the start of this year. It was kind of out of consensus. I remember looking at it. I think it was about 150 or something on a two-year, and I thought, okay, that's punchy. Mm. We've blasted through that, Mike. Have we done everything we need to do with the front end of the curve? Is that done, dusted, finished? I don't think so, John. And it's interesting, right? Because you think about how much tightening's priced in over the next couple of meetings, fine. 50 each, sort of boring. But for the end of this year, it's it's been bouncing around between 185 and 200. That seems to be sort of where it's going to land. But our big issue is how little tightening is priced for next year. 30, 40 basis points. That's a joke. You think about it, the biggest inflation worry in actual reality in the last 40 years, and how can the Fed or other central banks, for that matter, really think to get it under control in 12 months' time? I think that's incredibly implausible. So we expect a lot more tightening to be priced in for 23. That pushes up the two-year, pushes up the three years. So a lot more work to be done there. Michael, speaking of work to be done, you are way out front of the weekend notes we're going to see, and frankly, the notes into June which is the party is over on a goods supply chain analysis and that inflation is greater embedded into our system. Does Wells Fargo model model a path to 4% or an Adam Posen 3%? Or can you actually model back to a 2% level? Yeah, 2% seems... 
aspirational at this point, Tom, I think to put it kindly. And you've got to say, well, where are the central bankers likely to declare victory? If they got inflation down to 3%, let's say in 18 months, would that be good enough? Maybe that's still too high. 250, I think they're done. So 2% maybe in many, many years, but not in the next one or wow. two. That so, just seems so Mike, this is a, a forecast dependent Fed still then. Ultimately, they get down to say four and they forecast two and then they're done. <laughs> I think that the deal here, John, is that the Fed's going to have what I would call a binary discussion, maybe in five or six months. And they'll say, look, inflation's down, almost certainly, probably down a fair bit. And this is what a lot of people discussed. And then what does the Fed, how does the Fed read that? Is it the pace is good enough or the level still bad? And we don't really know the answer to that. So I think the Fed is, it's looking at the actual data coming in, paying a lot less heed to its models than it has in the past. But that really multiplies the chance of an overshoot and too much tightening. Mike Schumacher of Wells Fargo. Mike, tons to think about there. Thank you, buddy, and good luck with Chris when you get back to the office. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.